Well, um, good afternoon. Let's start with the blessing for a Torah study. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, our God, who makes us holy with your commandments and has given us the mitzvah of engaging with the words of Torah. And this week's Torah portion is, again, what's called a double portion. And it's the last two portions of the Book of Numbers, Matot and Masei. And uh, there's a lot going on in these portions. And um, a lot that is, um, there are things that are uh, uh, difficult for modern readers. There's uh, portions that are uh, um, travelogue. There's all kinds of stuff going on. What I want to focus on today, what drew my attention, was chapter 35 of the Book of Numbers. So if, you wanna, if you're looking in your own text, we're going to be looking at chapter 35 in the Book of Numbers. And this uh, description of a, a, an institution in ancient Israel called Aremiklat, which means cities of refuge. Um, and I want to look at it with you as is our, as is our um, uh, uh, way of doing things frequently. I want to look at it with you both from a um, historical, but then also from a spiritual, emotional, inner perspective, this idea of cities of refuge and how, and the different levels we can read it on. So I think we'll just start by looking at the text and seeing what it describes, okay? And then in the course of the hour, we'll, we'll, we'll try to cover multiple levels of interpretation. Thank you, uh, Gwen. Uh, so, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh spoke to Moshe in the plains of Moab by Jordan, Jericho, saying. So they're looking across the Jordan River. That's where they're camped now. And that's where they will remain through the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the following book, on the far side of the Jordan. Command the children of Israel that they may give over to the Levites from their inherited holdings towns to settle in and pasture land for the towns around them. Give to the Levites. The town shall be for them to settle in, and their pasture land shall be for their cattle, their property, and for all their animals. And the pasture lands of the towns that you give to the Levites shall be from the wall of the town and outward, a thousand cubits all around. And now it describes the, um, how far that means the limits of a Levite pasture land is. Um, so, Let's just pause right there, just so that we understand what's going on. The Levites are the priestly caste. They are dedicated to the service of God. As such, they are not granted a land holding as the other tribes are. They do not have possession of a section of the promised land. Rather, they belong to God. So, and this is where history trying, this is where history gets all mashed up because uh, 
we know that in later times, Jerusalem was the only uh, um, religious center in the, in the land of Israel. But early on, it's clear from reading in the book of Joshua and the book of Judges and the book of Samuel that worship was not centralized. And the Levites lived in every province. And so they were given a town to dwell in. And they had room to pasture their flocks, but they were mostly supported by uh, both gifts and um, uh, necessary tithes from the people. And as such, these Levite towns were what we say in you know, Scotland, cultic centers. They were, they were the religious centers of those areas, okay? So that's what the Levite towns are. That's what we're talking about here. Now I'm looking at, uh, any, any questions about that? Okay, well, if you do, you just jump in. Now, in verse six, it says, this is where this new idea comes in. Thank you. And with the towns that you give to the Levites, uh, with the six towns of asylum that you give for fleeing to, for the accidental murderer, along with them you are to give 42 towns. All right, so 48 towns go to the Levites. Six of them have this special designation called um, I'm looking at the Hebrew. Uh, uh, they're called um, uh, cities of refuge. Um, so all the towns you give to the Levites all together are 48 towns, them and their pasture land. And the towns that you give them from the holdings of the children of Israel from those that have many, you are to take many. From those that have few, you are to take few. Each one, according to his inheritance, that they receive as inheritance, is to give of its towns for the Levites. In other words, each of the tribes and its land holdings will give a proportionate amount of their wealth and land to the Levites. Now we get to um, the description of what these cities of refuge are. And that's where we're going to focus. Yodhevave spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the land of Jordan into the land of Canaan, you are to select for yourself certain towns. Towns of asylum shall they be for you. That's what I translated as cities of refuge, same word in Hebrew. For fleeing to, for the accidental murderer. Thank you, Gwen. There it is highlighted in red on my screen. For the fleeing to, for the accidental murderer, one who strikes down a life in error, bishkaga means without intent, by accident. Okay? So, the um, accidental murderer is someone who has committed a homicide unintentionally, right? without ill intent, but still has committed a homicide. We'll get to why they need a place to flee to by continuing to read um, uh, the text. The towns shall be for you for asylum from the blood redeemer. Redeemer also would more 
we would hear about it as the, uh, yes, manslaughter. It's, it's, um, the, it's when and someone is, when you take someone's life um, without premeditation and without intent. That's manslaughter. That's correct. Um, the blood redeemer, you might hear more, more, more uh, recognizably as the blood avenger. Uh, which we will discuss. Um, the town shall be if you asylum from the blood redeemer, that the murderer not die until he can come before the community for justice, judgment, meaning a trial. Okay. Um, let's stop there for a second. In, that, in the ancient world, and certainly in that part of the world, um, until this very day, there are blood feuds between clans and tribes. That is an ancient, ancient form of justice that lives on to the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? Um, you kill one of mine, I kill one of yours, we're even, okay? That's how it worked. Um, and what we know from the Torah is that so many of the laws of the Torah are an attempt to institute a system of justice that overrides individuals or clans taking the law into their own hands. That's what's going on. That doesn't mean that the Torah we know that there are death penalties in the Torah, many, right? So the elimination of the death penalty in Judaism does not happen until, oh, the time of the Talmud and previous to that, where the rabbis of the first and second and third century make, it, make capital punishment, so the requirements to institute capital punishment so onerous on the prosecution as to make it virtually impossible to inflict a death sentence. So for those again, who are relatively new to Torah study, I wanna to explain to you that the Jewish legal tradition is an evolving tradition. Um, I'll get to Roni's question in a second. The Jewish legal tradition is an evolving tradition and it evolves to this day. So that death penalties in the Torah become obsolete in later Jewish teaching. I hope that's clear to everyone. However, I want to examine it on its own terms because the principle carries through. Uh, Sharoni asks, who wrote this and when? Okay, we don't know who wrote the Bible. We don't know who the author is. Um, again, our working assumption is that this is not a unitary text, but a um, an edited compilation weaving together of textual traditions and storytelling traditions from many centuries. And the best scholarly guess is that this text comes from perhaps the 8th century BCE. Okay? So even though it's retrojecting this conversation, this, this, this uh, into their own distant past before they had become the kingdom of Judah and Israel, uh, our assumptions from a scholarly perspective is that um, this, was, this was composed sometime around the 8th century BCE. I hope that's helpful.
Uh, okay, so in the Bible, there are many death penalties. Um, but in most cases, where when it's not when it doesn't result in a if it's an animal that dies, you can compensate the owner with restitution, right? Monetary damages. If a person loses an eye, remember it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The Torah means that uh, you, there is compensation, monetary restitution for the loss of function that that person has suffered. But the exception in the Torah is the spilling of human blood that results in a loss of life. And to understand that, you have to understand that from the very beginning, Cain slaying Abel, it's crystal clear that the spilling of human blood pollutes God's creation. And I use the word pollute, I think that's a good word, desecrates, defiles human blood, the life force of the human being, blood in general. The reason the rules of kashrut are that you cannot drink the blood of an animal is it is also holy and not for human consumption. It's, this, it's the life force that's coursing through everything and the blood belongs to God. And again, as I've taught many times and many are familiar, the word for blood, dam, the word for human, Adam, and the word for earth, Adama, are all intimately connected in the Hebrew. And of course, the word for red, R-E-D, is Edom, Adom. So, um, Joan says, if this is written, how is it that humans embrace war and killing from all history? Um, Joan, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> Human history is this struggle between our rapacious nature and our understanding that there's a higher way to live. And we are watching that struggle unfold every moment of human history. I don't know what else to say. Um, oh, was there ever a time when scripture was law? Absolutely. Yes, this was the law. The effort of this law was that any, it prior to the institution of a system, a centralized system of courts and justice, which is such a big part of the Torah. Remember, justice, justice, you shall pursue. Judges cannot take bribes. Um, you, you shall judge the high and the low alike. There shall be one law in your country for stranger and citizen alike. These are things that the Torah repeats over and over again. The Torah is an attempt to institute an objective, fair justice system onto a new nation. Um, it's one of the, it's again, one of the revolutionary aspects of the Torah. Because in its time, the law was in the hands of the most powerful by and large. Um, and in its time, up till this very day where honor killings are still happening all over the world, um, and blood revenge, still happening all over the world, uh, justice was understood to be um, tit for tat. If you killed someone 
from my clan, someone from your clan must die. Um, so the Torah I see as a, a true advance, a, a rather a dramatic, amazing advance in the understanding of what justice means. Okay, so I'm, and again, I'll say, just look at our justice system today. Who just got, whose sentence just got commuted? Who thinks that if you're powerful, your word is law? It's like, this is the basest part of human nature. And when, and we have to combat it with what we call civilization, which recognizes that everyone has equal right to a fair trial, for example. All of that. Uh, uh, there's a lot that, you know, I, I, I have a lot I want to cover today, so I won't, I won't blab on about that. Um, but my point is that in ancient Israel, it wasn't just tit for tat. It was that if human blood had been spilled intentionally or unintentionally, the understanding was that blood, that rest, the, the redeemer from that tribe, the Goel, had to spill blood in return. It was a kind of cosmic balancing. Um, it was an understanding that there is, while you can be compensated for all kinds of deaths of non-humans, loss of body parts, uh, all kinds of things could be restituted, uh, get restitution by financial compensation, not a human life. So the Torah does not override any intentional homicide at this stage of Israel's development, when this text was composed. However, what if it is unintentional manslaughter? According to the previous law of the land, the redeemer from the clan who, uh, um, who lost a person must go kill that person who killed them. That was the law. The purpose of the cities of refuge was to make a way for there to be a judgment about whether a homicide was intentional or unintentional to protect the life, life of the one who committed the murder until such a uh, judgment was made. And then if that person was found to have been committed an unintentional crime, they could live in the city of refuge and not have their life be in danger by the previous law that was the law of the land. Make sense, everybody? Okay, let's read on a little bit. Um, three of the towns, I'm in verse 14, three of the towns you are to provide across the Jordan, and three of the towns you are to provide in the land of Canaan, towns of asylum they are to be for the children of Israel, for the sojourner, and for the temporary settler among them. In other words, for citizens and non-citizens alike. Uh, these six towns are to be for asylum, for fleeing to for anyone who strikes down a person in error. But if with an iron instrument he struck him down so that he died, he is a murderer. Put to death, put to death must the murderer be. 
And if with a stone in hand through which one can die, he struck him down so that he died, he is a murderer. Put to death and put to death must the murderer be. Or with a wooden instrument in hand through which he, one can be struck, to, one can die, he struck him down so that he died. Uh, um, uh, let's see, uh, did I miss a verse, Gwen? Uh, yeah, he is a murderer, put to death. Put to death must the murderer be. As for the blood redeemer, he may put to death the murderer upon meeting him. He may put him to death. As if there, it's not clear enough, okay, everybody? That was the law of the land. However, and if in hatred he pushed him or threw something at him lying in wait so that he died or in enmity struck him with his hand so that he died, put to death, put to death must he be who is struck. He is a murderer. The blood redeemer may put the murderer to death upon meeting him. Okay. First degree murder, second degree murder, third degree murder, you know, uh, oh, uh, these are their descriptions. But if with suddenness, with no previous enmity, he pushed him or threw at him any instrument without lying in wait. Later in Deuteronomy, it says, if his ax head flew off by accident, or if he accidentally pushed a rock off of a roof, things like that, you know, accidents. Um, oh, there it is. Or with any stone instrument through which one can die without seeing him, he dropped it on him so he died. He was not his enemy, not one seeking his ill. The community is to judge between the striker and the blood redeemer. We'll go on a little bit. According to these regulations, here's what has to happen. The community is to rescue the murderer from the hand of the blood redeemer. And the community is to return him to his town of asylum to which he fled. And he is to stay in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the oil of holiness. But if the murderer goes out, yes, goes out from the border of his town of asylum, whence he fled, and the blood redeemer finds him outside the border of his town of asylum, the blood redeemer may murder the murderer without blood guilt. Indeed, in this town of asylum, he must stay until the death of the high priest. After the death of the high priest, then the murderer may return to the land of his holding. Uh, okay, so my understanding of this, uh, to unpack that language, is that the, um, the one who killed by accident flees to one of these cities of refuge. Now, another word for a city of refuge is a sanctuary city. Another word is a place of asylum. Around the ancient world, and still in some echoes to this day, a person who was being chased by the mob for justice would go into the sanctuary or into the church or into the Holy of, and, and grab onto the altar where he had asylum. He, you couldn't spill human blood there. So these sanctuary cities, we know from the names of them, were also cities where there were religious centers in ancient Israel, where the Levites had established uh, sanctuaries. And so um, these were places where the person was protected. Down in, you know, 
the sanctuary city movement that we're hearing about today in this country, where uh, the city says they will not cooperate with uh, immigrant authorities in rooting out um, uh, undocumented uh, immigrants. Uh, it's the same principle of, of protecting those under, within your walls, right? That's what giving sanctuary is. Rabbi, in ancient Greece, Delphi was a city of sanctuary for them. That's right. That's right. And slaves could go there, right? And, and there, there's still a large rock there inscribed with slaves who were free. So they could always say, no, my name's written in Delphi. You can't, I'm, I'm not escaped. Um, I was freed. Thank you. Thank you, Gwen. According to this and the other places in the Torah where we hear about the sanctuary cities, the cities of refuge, um, the person would flee there. The, the blood avenger would be uh, not permitted to enter and there would be a trial. If the person was found not guilty of intentional homicide, he still had to remain within the sanctuary city for the rest of his life or until the high priest died. There are many explanations about why that would be the uh, moment uh, when he could leave again. But it appears that the high priest, if you remember, carries the sins of all the people into the Holy of Holies. So the high priest bears the sins of all the people. And to be released from blood guilt, the high priest becomes the atonement for anyone who had shed blood unwittingly and who could still have their blood shed in return. Because it, and so after the high priest would die, it was a communal understanding that that high priest's death um, made atonement, expiation, for all the unintentional homicides, at which point the person could leave the sanctuary city and go back home. And we'll read a little more and then we'll, we'll uh, talk about different interpretations. Uh, these shall be for you as a law of procedure into your generations throughout all your settlements. Whoever strikes down a person at the mouth of witnesses, only may a murderer be murdered, okay? That's an important line repeated elsewhere in the Torah. There must be eyewitnesses. You can't just say, so-and-so killed my cousin, so I'm going to kill him. If there are no eye, so that's an important undercut to all of this. First of all, the, the need for eyewitnesses. Um, one witness alone may not testify against the person to have him put to death. You have to have multiple um, witnesses because one eyewitness is insufficient. So the laws of Jewish jurisprudence are contained in the Torah here. And it is these laws about multiple eyewitnesses that the rabbis use later to make it extremely difficult, almost virtually impossible for the death penalty to be imposed. But you can't accept a ransom, in other words, compensa compensatory damages for the life of a murderer, since he is cult culpable. He is to be put to death. And you are not to accept a ransom for him to flee to his town of asylum, for him to return to settle in the land until the death of the high priest. And you are not to corrupt the land that you are in, for the blood will corrupt the land. If you remember, the reason that Noah 
in the story of Noah, the reason God feels he has to purify the land by wiping out the civilizations that have grown is because they have polluted the earth with their violence. That's the language of the Noah story. That's the, this is a, the idea, human bloodshed physically pollutes the land and spiritually pollutes the land at the same time. So the land cannot be purged of the blood that has been shed upon it except through the blood of him who shed it. That's when God says to Cain, where's your brother Abel? Cain says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, look, your brother's Abel's blood is crying out from the earth. That's, again, this metaphor that runs through the whole Torah. You are not to make tamay impure, the land in which you are settling, in whose midst I dwell, for I am Yudhei dweller in the midst of Israel. If you shed blood of other human beings, the blood, the land has become polluted in such a way that the divine presence cannot dwell there. That's the metaphor. Again, we understand that metaphor. We don't experience God's presence amidst bloodshed, abuse, and violence. Uh, God, God would say, that's why we say, where was God at Auschwitz, right? God wasn't there. It's, that's, that's, that's the metaphor that we carry through to this day when we talk about where can God dwell. Um, uh, Joan, okay, let me read a few comments. Um, I think this, there is or was a city of refuge in uh, Hawaii. Well, yeah, let's all go to Hawaii. Um, the methods seem rather unusual. Couldn't the murder be unintentional with those? Maybe not. I don't know, Blaze. I didn't study it deeply enough. Linguistic question. Is sanctum related to sanguine, as in blood? What a great question. I'd, I'll look into that later too, Joan. And Ellen said, Ellen Weaver said, I've read that one's family could move to the city of refuge. Is that under certain circumstances? Good. I want to talk about that. And Joan said, well, there goes God's presence everywhere, everywhere on earth. Untrue, Joan. God's, God's energy is present among countless acts of loving kindness that are occurring at every moment. Um, it's just not permanent. It's contingent on human behavior. So that's why God's presence is an evanescent experience. You don't get to have it permanently. It's contingent on your consciousness and your behavior. Um, Gwen says, the rabbis say that to free a widow to remarry, you only need one witness. Beautiful. That's right. There's times for leniency on witnesses, but in capital crimes, they are over the top on how many witnesses they need to be. Okay, so let me get my papers here. Um, and this, and this, because I had a really interesting time. So later in Deuteronomy, it says, and you must pave roads. Uh, let's see, Roni Stanley says, I missed that. Did the rabbi say you don't get God's presence automatically? Correct. It's contingent on your, how you are treating other people around you. Um, 
Roberta Wall says, here in the South, policing had its origins in returning enslaved people who made it to refugee cities like Philly and the Western territories. The Dred Scott decision. Yes. Yep. Those were the original posses, vigilantes, police forces. They were hunting down, in the South, were hunting down uh, escaped slaves. That's not our definition of justice. Oh my. Okay. So they have to be, what the, what, what the Talmud does with this is they read this and other descriptions of the cities of sanctuary, the refuge cities. There have to be paved roads, to, as in well-maintained roads to each of these cities so that a person can get there easily, for example. And uh, the goal is to make sure that the blood avenger cannot fulfill taking that law into their own hands until there has been a trial with witnesses. Therefore, if someone committed intentional homicide and fled to a city of refuge, there would be a trial. If he was found guilty, he would be released to the blood avenger. But there was due process. This due process is the innovation of the Torah. Requirement for witnesses, witness uh, a protection plan, protective custody, that's what this is, and the ability afterwards to continue to be in protective custody uh, um, in the town. So the questions they ask are, is this cruel? Um, I mean, they're away from home. They're, uh, they're not, um, uh, where's their family? Can their family come with them? And the answers are, yes, the family can come with them. And then there's this amazing statement in the Torah, that, in the Talmud that uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talked about, which is that your teacher needs to come with you. Um, so that essentially, if you're innocent, the Talmud is indicating you need to be able to resume your life even though you can't resume it fully by being abroad in the land because of the nature of the vigilante justice that's out there. So the Talmud is very um, sympathetic to the person who commits um, unintentional manslaughter. But now, so, so that's the historical context. Let's see. Uh, Joan said, it's so important for us to act against the vigilantism that has returned in force in the way of terrorist acts like the attacks on protesters. And Roni says, Rabbi, do you know the story of the murderer who came to the Buddha and gave up murdering and became the Buddha's greatest disciple? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. There are similar stories in the, um, that, that's, that's a um, motif of spiritual stories. The one in the Talmud, the most famous one in the Talmud, is that there's a bandit and brigand named Reish Lakish, who when he meets Rabbi Yochanan, when he comes to uh, um, uh, uh, steal Rabbi Yochanan's uh, stuff and burglarize him and terrorize him, and he meets Rabbi Yochanan, it's like he's so bowled over by the light coming out of Rabbi Yochanan that Reish Lakish gives up all his old ways and becomes Rabbi Yochanan's chief disciple. Which is to say, Roni, that these motifs of what it means to meet someone who has light pouring out of them and is, is, can transform 
uh, others into followers. So thank you for that. Um, Roberta, what's that you wrote in there? Oh, that, that's the name of the murderer, Angulimala, and it, it refers to the necklace of, of uh, I think, the thumbs of the people he had murdered that he wore around his neck. Well, that's good and vivid. Um, uh, and the one in the Jewish tradition's name is Reish Lakish. And you could look up some of the stories of Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish sometimes, and they'll remind you of those stories. Uh, and Roni says, but that is why I wonder how God's presence can be denied anyone. It's not denied to people, people deny it, Roni. We have free will and we have the capability of denying God's presence through the energy we put out into the world. Um, they're not denied the presence. The presence is just waiting for them to open their hearts, always. But if they don't, they deny the presence. I hope that's clear. That's what it means to have freedom of choice. Okay, so then I read two beautiful things. Three, actually. Uh, four, let's see how many I get to. The first one I wanna talk about is, I found this beautiful Dvar Torah by a woman named Wendy Kabi from Darche um, Noam uh, Congregation in, I forget where it was. And she was reading an article in the New Yorker on this Shabbos a couple years ago about a young woman who through no fault of her own, she was driving the speed limit, she was paying attention, in 1977 struck and killed a little boy who had run into the path of the car. An unintentional homicide. And she wasn't put in jail, but she herself lived with this her whole adult life, right? And in this story in The New Yorker, um, 40 years, not for, almost 40 years later, yeah, 77, yeah, almost 40 years later, she had retired from a career. Let me see what else it says. Um, Right, she'd retired from a career and um, uh, then heard about an accident of an elderly man who had lost control of his vehicle and killed 10 people. Um, and uh, she called up, the, somehow she decided she had to tell her story. And by telling her story, scores and scores of people got in touch with her and said, oh my God, I've been living with this myself for 40 years. There, are, there were so many people who were living in this, in this prison of, um, internal prison of guilt for an act they had, they had committed without any intent, an accidental death. And so um, what, what this lovely woman says is that the city of refuge was a protective sub-society of sorts. It allowed a space for offenders to reside while awaiting trial without the threat of an avenger. And if, not, if found not guilty, they were assured protection so long as they never left the city walls. It provided a safe haven for those paralyzed by their guilt, 
to live in God's sanctuary. Not to feel abandoned, but rather entrenched in Hashem's unconditional love. What is her name again? What? What is her name again? She's a congregant. Wendy Kabi, K-H-A-B-I-E. And it was Darche Noam, and it was on their blog from a couple of years ago. Let me just read that again. Not to feel abandoned, but rather entrenched in Hashem's unconditional love, to have a built-in brotherhood. And there were six of these such places. Um, and then um, when uh, Marion Gray had her accident in 1977, uh, there was no city of refuge for her. Um, until 30 years later, um, the bold move of exposing herself opened doors to a club whose reluctant members really need each other. Yet thousands of years ago, Hashem had the sensibility to prearrange for a commune where Israelites who committed unintentional crimes could be brought together with others in the same situation. Then she says, when I first read about this thought, and the thought entered my mind that the Torah is just like a smartphone. There's an app for everything. But that was her, that was her piece of humor in there, which I like. But her beautiful insight is that the city of refuge is not only a place where you are protected from being murdered, but it's a place where you get sanctuary with others like you to share the burden of your actions, your unintentional. I thought that was beautiful. And I'd never thought of that as one of the reasons for there to be a sanctuary where God's presence dwelt to embrace you where you could be. I, I thought that was quite beautiful. Wow, you found it fast, Gwen. I guess I recommend reading this. I'm going to say another thing that she said. Having a religious destination for these cities likely helped these refugees. Of all the 613 mitzvot, I bet many would never guess that building these cities ranks among them. Keep in mind, these were not luxurious resorts, more like minimum security prisons, where the offenders are not completely escaping punishment. There's still a very powerful suggestion that accidents have consequences. They are not released until the high priest dies. Only then. So they are paying a price but not of their life. And this, this author, this woman, uh, Marion Gray, clearly understood that she was paying the price every day of her life. And uh, the author is saying, she only discovered the com company that would give, give her a sense of not being alone in, her, in her, uh, the, the consequences of her action 30 years later. I found that very powerful, that we could be um, cities of refuge for each other, right, in a beautiful way. Marion Gray writes, if she had been exiled to a city of refuge, she might not have, quote, needed exile from myself. Um, so I thought that was beautiful. Um, I had never thought of a city of refuge as a place to get refuge also in that way. 
Uh, let's see, a couple of comments. Um, Joan has uh, another holy story from India. Um, Roni says, all of us have this kind of blight and acknowledging it is what makes us vulnerable, empathetic and compassionate. So all of us can live in cities of refuge. Perfect, Roni, that's exactly what I was trying to say. And Rob says, not only paying the price, but finding brother sisterhood among others with similar experience, which is redemptive. Yes. If you have someone to mirror and reflect your experience, we all know this from any support group we've been in, from any club we've ever entered, there where everyone says, this is the club no one wanted to be in, yet here we are, right? Um, yes, yes, beautiful, beautiful. So that's one way of understanding the city of refuge in addition to this external framework that I described. And then my colleague Mark Margolius wrote today, Rabbi Mark Margolius, um, he was gonna, he's leading a meditation soon about inner cities of refuge to which we all can flee for safety from avenging thoughts and feelings that pursue us. So Mark takes it in a completely internal direction now. And again, I wanna repeat, all of these levels coexist. One does not negate the other. Uh, so on an internal level, do we have a place of refuge? What's our, can have, what are our practices to create sanctuaries which give us protection from the thoughts that assault us because of the nature of our crazy psyches, right? So that's an entirely internal one. Mar Mark Margolius, you spelled it right, M-A-R-C. And if you look up the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, you'll find great stuff there. Um, and my research assistant is hard at work, <laughs> Gwen. <laughs> Blaze, uh, let's see, Myrna said, what about that island in Louisiana for leprosy? There was a story about that, the community that um, lepers founded with newspapers and, and uh, schools and they could be with each other while, before leprosy was understood and treated. I heard that story, where was I listening, Myrna? And Blaise said, yes, redemptive. Grief is often accompanied with guilt, especially suicides and the refuge people can find with each other in the same situation. Agreed. We think we're the only ones so much of the time. And yet if we have people to share the experience with, the tragedies of our lives become truly the um, uh, building materials for the blessings we can give later in our lives. Because we've experienced it, we've um, metabolized it, and we understand it, and we've forgiven ourselves to whatever degree we're able, we then are in a position to reach out to others who are suffering the way we did. That's certainly the way it goes. That's another way we can be cities of refuge, isn't it? If we fully metabolize and process those experiences and release ourselves, it's not something you can do like that and eventually find ourselves being released from the grip of the past. Yes. So inner cities of refuge, another beautiful metaphor for us to contemplate. 
And then I thought that Shabbat is the city of refuge from the week. Um, Jonathan, can I say something? Please. Um, I had a teacher, um, she's in Chabad, and she talked about um, when one of her children were young and they were going to, uh, you know, a, a Hasidic uh, yeshiva across the street and they came home in the middle of the day because some kid on the schoolyard had teased them or something and they lived literally across the street so they ran home. And she, of course, hauled him back to school because what else can you do when a kid leaves school? But internally, she's like, oh my God, you know, the kid's going to get yelled at and, and all he did was come to find me. Um, so they end up at the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the school, you know, all in black, stern guy. And he looked at the kid and he said, so new, you're in so-and-so's class. You're learning about the city of refuges, yes? Tell me about them. And the kid tells him. And he said, so I understand that you're Ima, your mother is a city of refuge, but you should know that I am a city of refuge and your teacher's a city of refuge and you don't have to leave the schoolyard. You have refuge within the school. Thank you for that beautiful story, Gwen. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Okay, bye, Kim. Uh, Kim just said she has to go back to work and we'll be finishing up in just a, just a few minutes. Uh, Joan said, to let go of the past, we must find steps to take to make the forgiveness real in the future. Roberta wrote, accidental murderer takes refuge until the high priest dies. A new generation arising. There is something in this about a refuge process to heal ancestral trauma. Oh boy, there's another beautiful uh, tributary we could uh, sail down um, from this deep teaching. And then I was reading that the original Aptor Rebbe, who was a, a part of um, an early Hasidic master, his name was Abram, Abram Joshua Heschel. Our Abram Joshua Heschel that we study was his direct descendant. He said, listen to this, this is really sweet. The Shema has six words. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. He said, those six words are, a city of ref are the cities of refuge. And if you think of that in terms of consciousness, yes, we find refuge in our embracing of the one. It takes us out of our, um, the mazes of our mind and out of the, and, we, and if we're God's children, then we're part of it too. I thought that was beautiful. And then he went on and said, if you count the words of the paragraph that follows, Ba'havta, you shall love Adonai your God with all your heart, soul, and might, that followed directly after the Shema, that's 42 words. So the 42 words and the six words are 48, which are the full number of Levitical towns. And uh, the tradition that the Talmud says is that not only were the six cities of refuge a place to get refuge, but even the other 42. So the Apta Rebbe says that the Shema and Ve'ahavta, where you contemplate the oneness of God and the commandment to love with all your heart, soul, and might. That's our, during our prayer, that becomes a city of refuge for our consciousness. Isn't that, I thought that was really beautiful. Really beautiful. Um, so, let's see. Apter Rebbe, A-P-T-E-R. That's right, you spelled it right. 
Well, thank you. So we have looked at this biblical concept. We covered its history, its legal context from the time, which is crucial to understand the forward-moving understanding of justice that the Bible gives to the world. And then we look at it in this modern sense of, from this beautiful writer who said, um, but wait, the city of refuge is also a place of refuge where you meet other people and you know that you're in the presence of God's forgiveness and you can live with the guilt of your accidental murder. That's beautiful. So the city of refuge has both an external protection, but also an internal healing mechanism. And then we also discussed how um, each of us can be a city of refuge for each other, like that story Gwen told, and how we can also, how the Shabbos, how Sabbath and prayer can be a city of refuge, and how internally to us, we can identify the place of protection, sanctuary, and refuge, and nurture, placing our consciousness there whenever we can. Um, wait, Roni, are you Joan's relative? Joan and, and Roni, are you guys cousins? I think that's cool if that's true. Um, no, they're reflecting on is the Apter Rebbe. Um, oh, that's town. right, Joan, Joan Apter. Yes, Joan, that means you come from the Polish town of Optowa something. I forget what it is. Um, but that means you might be related. We have to find that out. That was a good joke, Roni. And Barb said, I love that about the Shema, especially when you say it before you go to sleep. A peaceful, protective feeling. That's right. And also when you go to sleep, if you do this custom, you invoke the protective presence of God and the archangels. So yes, you are creating a city of refuge before you go to sleep. And Joan says, in isolation, I am finding refuge in the kindness of others. Bless them. And Roberta says, long ago, Reb Gershon Winkler taught that Shabbat and sitting Shiva were connected. Um, oh, right. Roberta said sitting Shiva, which is seven days long. There was a lot of resistance to that, but now I'm getting it in relation to what goes on in the cities of refuge, places of refuge. Yeah, when we, when we sit Shiva and it's a full Shiva, you are definitely in a protective bubble in which your grief can again be, I like that word metabolized, come through you and be released. Okay, my friends, that's Torah for today. What beautiful comments you all had. Thank you for letting me do that.